This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree its affiliates. Professor Siegel, we're going to get your take on the markets. I know you're focused on inflation. How are you thinking about the rest of September here? Right, and and uh, this morning we did get the uh, producer price index. Uh, it, it's slightly more important to get the CPI, which comes out next Tuesday. But the PPI was firm; it was pretty much in line with expectations. Maybe a tad above overall demand, ticked up seven tenths year over year, is eight point three percent. But this was pretty close to uh, expectations. Um, however, I, I, I didn't find the details particularly soothing. Um, uh, first of all, one should realize that the producer price index, as it is currently formulated, only has a 10-year history um, because they reformulated it uh, back in uh, 2011, uh, revamped it dramatically. Uh, the previous way of, of doing producer price indexes has a, a 60-year history, and um, it's up 10.3% on the way that they used to do it. So actually, uh, it's up even more. Also, uh, what we call the pipeline, which is the intermediate and crude goods uh, 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 part of the producer price index, which is uh, goods uh, that are in the earlier stages of production are, are up quite dramatically. Intermediate goods are up 21% from a year ago. Crude goods are up. 50% from a year ago. Um, so uh, although this came in close to expectations, it, it should not quiet inflation fears in my uh, estimation. Now, uh, looking until next Tuesday, we have four-tenths expected overall and three-tenths on the core rate. Uh, my expectation is going to be above those. We're going to see. I think that... Um, uh, uh, if it is above those, that that's really going to color the FOMC. And the FOMC, as you know, will meet in the following week. On the 22nd, we will get the um, uh, the Fed's uh, judgment about whether uh, they should start tapering or not. Now, there's no question that the Delta variant ha- has slowed the economy. Uh, GDP estimates for this uh, third quarter uh, that uh, that we just uh, entered in a week or so ago are really down to about three and a half percent. So a big de- deceleration from the recovery uh, that we had experienced uh, before. Um, there are signs that the uh, Delta surge is um, cresting. Uh, the seven-day uh, average has uh, tended to peak. It could be regional, peaking in the south. Uh, and then moving into the north. The big wild card will be whether there is spread in the schools, since 
uh, virtually all schools are now back in person, whether uh, uh, that does spread it um, among children. We do see increased infection among children. Um, they don't have the vaccine under 12, so uh, uh, that, that's to be expected. So um, there are some wild cards there, and that might convince the Fed not to announce until the November meeting uh, on, on any taper. But I think um, when, what we've been listening to, and by the way, uh, the supply disruptions, which were thought by the Fed to be temporary, um, more and more we are hearing they are not temporary uh, and could last for months. Um, and some even expect more than a year. Those reports that the chip shortage for automobiles uh, may last a year or more. This is obviously also going to put upward uh, pressure uh, on prices. I've heard some anecdotes that in Philly, Professor, that some of the restaurant traffic, you know, after somebody who's worked with a number of the restaurants, you know, down traffic 50, 60 percent or more in the last few weeks from where they were before, that some of that concerns over, over the Delta. Do you think there's any chance the Fed would actually start this taper discussion this, this week, the next few weeks? Or do you think that November is, is a little bit more likely at this stage? I would say that you, you will see the dot plots move up because there is concern about inflation. Um, but depending on what we get, if, we, if the CPI comes in close to expected, um, four-tenths, three-tenths, uh, he could probably afford to wait till November for the plan. I think he, that what they'll do then is tee up the plan, saying we are now in the final stage of formulating um, strongly implying that, uh, you know, unless there's a big change in the economic outlook, that the plan for tapering uh, will take place uh, on uh, uh, in, in November. Again, a, a lot of that depends on the data on, on prices. I'm very interested also to see whether, you know, how the money supply is, is coming in. We've, we've seen a deceleration the last two months, which is is welcome. Uh, will that continue um, in the month of August? We'll have to wait uh, at least uh, two weeks for that. So, yes, there is a slowdown. Uh, they may wait, but one has to realize their inflation is still a very important part of their mandate. Uh, not just employment, not just the economy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's my belief inflation is going to stay in the 4 to 6% range or higher for quite a long time, and more and more people are going to be affected in terms of their savings and purchasing power as a result of it. Any other thoughts on this uh, potential correction that comes from that? Are you, are you still thinking that's yeah, possible? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, we, we've had a little softening, um, nothing, uh, you know, big. Uh, I thought we would have a correction by the end of uh, September. Of course, we still have a uh, a number of weeks to go, a, a, a small, a lot of it depends on what I think the data is going to come in in inflation and whether the Fed is going to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, how hawkish the uh, Powell and the Fed and the dot plots will look um, and, and uh, for, for their meeting. Um, second half of September could be could be treacherous, but one has to realize the 10 year is still pretty well behaved in the 130s range. Um, uh, earnings are still extraordinarily good. Yes, there's softness, um, but um, 
you know, given given the demand that is still out there and the profit margins that are out there, I still think earnings are going to be very supportive of the economy. Still thinking that we might get that 5% correction, but certainly uh, it's um, uh, a not a sure thing. Thank you for giving us some comments. We, we're going to have really interesting guests today, Heather Potters of PharmaJet. She is co-founder of a very interesting uh, vaccine company, um, sort of needle-free vaccines, a, a graduate of the Wharton School. Heather, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Super to be here. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and, and your career, how you got to to, to PharmaJet. Sure. Well, um, I finished Wharton in 1991, and uh, I, I'm one of those mavericks where it's uh, show up and you never know what's going to happen. I ended up in Central and Eastern Europe just as the wall came down, and in the midst of what was to become a really respected private equity group, and, and really actually learning uh, feet to the fire in really nascent markets, early stage businesses, lots of force majeure all the time. And yet, when I look back and I thought about the returns that were really meaningful, it was when you could actually do something that was wonderful. So after three closed-end funds and not living, not wanting to live in Warsaw anymore, I ended up co-founding a business with my mother. And uh, it used to be a bit of a trade secret, but I have a family full of healthcare people, and she's one of those. And what we embarked on was to actually try and change the world of immunization, getting rid of needles. Uh, cleaning up the garbage dumps, we know that we all share the disease burden because it's global and borderless. And I relocated back to the U.S. to spend my full time on doing that. And the the, uh, exciting thing for us was, you know, if we could get rid of needles, that'd be great. Um, But if we could actually make it work better, that'd be even better. So if you fast forward to where we are today, um, we're at that crux where we can see the light where not only is there a wonderful upside and silver lining to what we do, but we've made a huge difference in global health. When you think about getting rid of those needles, everybody's thinking about the COVID vaccines right now and sort of topical, how many you're getting. Is is there something that you're doing with COVID and what, what are the, the vaccines that you, you're, you're most working with today? Well, if you look at the landscape of kind of historical vaccines, there's about 30 vaccine preventable diseases. And uh, with respect to COVID, which is an urgent need, um, there's actually about 144 developments that are trying to be a solution for that virus. And out of those that have been approved in the world, there's probably now about 10 of them. And the exciting thing for us is that as COVID kind of, as coronavirus concerns became a thing. We embarked on about 18 collaborations globally with partners in 10 different countries. And the one that's most advanced just received emergency authorization. Um, It's an India-based development, a pharmaceutical company there called Zytus Kadia. And the really exciting thing there is that to go from start to finish in about a year is light speed. Uh, So uh, PharmaJet has about 140 development programs with pharmaceutical groups around the world. But this one is really particularly special because not only can we be part of the solution, but um, it's got some other features that make it really special. And and we're just delighted to be able to to be in the epicenter of, of, frankly, why immunization is important. Well, wow. so is that actually live now? You said the emergency authorization in India is our people getting this vaccine. How many, you know, how 
how much is available? How, what are the, the issues ramping up uh, production? What, what is it, if it's a needle free? How are they actually getting these vaccines? Yeah, well, to, to I guess give you an analogy uh, for, for our needle free device, we essentially create a fast fluid injection that looks like a needle under high speed photography, but actually isn't. So we ramp the fluid to a certain level of velocity to be able to penetrate the skin, and then we wind off that velocity to make sure that it's comfortable for the patient. And the interesting thing around um, this Zytus collaboration is that after phase one, they dropped needle-based delivery altogether because Pharmagent makes it work better. Hmm. We tend to have a really unique impact on DNA, messenger RNA vaccines, Um, so it's not only that we're scaling to a big number, but we are the only method of administration. Our scale-ups to uh, somewhere between 250 and 350 million shots right now, which we're on on um, kind of plan to have on an annualized basis by end of Q1 this next year. We have, we're producing all the time, but we're also ramping capacity. So the, um, the 28,000 patients studied received you know, our, our needle-free injection, so that's cumulatively about how many people so far, but they'll start their commercial uh, rollout probably early October um, and grow figures you know, as fast as they possibly can. Same thing on their side. They've been ramping their vaccine capacity. So it's been a monumental undertaking. So if India is the first, um, where do you think is the, the, the next country that uh, <laughs> will get your, your, your technology? Well, um, I know that there's kind of like a NAFTA agreement where with Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Bangladesh, uh, neighboring Indian countries uh, may be beneficiaries of additional doses that that might not be used in India or as as time goes on, because it seems that COVID is endemic. It's going to be here to stay for a while. I do know also this group would like to have WHO prequalification, which means that it can serve other markets. And interestingly, Unlike messenger RNA, DNA vaccines are very thermostable, so it doesn't have cold chain challenges. In fact, some of the stress tests that they did stored it on the shelf at 80 degrees Fahrenheit for three months, froze it, thawed it, froze it again. And so I think we'll find that as time goes on, they can serve lower middle income countries particularly, Mm. and they'll probably want to be one of the lowest cost vaccines in the entire world. So lots of, of development time to come for sure, and, and probably more capacity. Yeah, I mean, so is, is if we say, how many companies do you say would, would are are doing similar needle free? I mean, is it do you have a big competition base? Is it is it only PharmaJet today that that sort of advancing this type of technology? In the vaccine space, generally, we're the only ones, and to deliver a vaccine. Uh, Typically, you have to either reach the muscle or be able to inject into the dermal layer, which is really hard to do, and we do it really well. The other needle-free technologies in the world uh, are cleared for subcutaneous use, and so would be things focused on insulin. There's a few experimental uh, needle-free technologies that are focused on large volume, slow delivery, like biologics or slivers of powder under your skin. Those are combination product processes, which are very specific to a drug or indication. So we don't really overlap. We're all in separate lanes. And PharmaJet is basically the only suitable alternative to needles uh, 
for vaccine delivery. And then in this particular case, again, uh, this is the first DNA vaccine approved for human use globally, and it doesn't work with needles. Hmm. We're talking with Heather Potter, who's a co-founder of PharmaJet, a very interesting needle-free technology. Um, Heather, you, you are currently a private business, um, right? There's no, you know, no public shareholders can't really invest in PharmaJet. But talk about the business side of PharmaJet. Like, obviously, these huge innovations. How do you think about how you've grown from, you know, as a startup business to, to being a private business? How, how do you think about uh, the opportunities ahead of you? Well, you know, we've been really lucky, frankly, to have fabulously supportive investors. So we have high net worth and family office investors to date that have supported our development. And we have our eyes on how we get them some liquidity. Um, for, for our purposes, there's really probably only a couple ways, which is, you know, trade sale or flotation. But I think that'll start to crystallize within the next 12 to 24 months. In part, it's liquidity for our shareholders, but more than that, um, there's a bigger world for us going forward. So if you consider that we have, out of these 140 development programs, you know, across 50, 60 different collaboration partners, many of them are in phase two and phase three, address infectious disease, cancer, other things. So hopefully within the next decade of our development, what we'll find is that we become the only method of administration for many uh, DNA, um, uh, you know, solutions for unmet needs, including cancer. We have a, a number of cancer collaborations. So if we were publicly listed, I think it would be one of those happy things where we would have many things to report about the underlying development with our partners. And then coming back a little bit to, to PharmaJet's business model, the way we collaborate, frankly, is to provide our technology to those partners to be able to utilize for their development purposes. And ultimately, when and if it shows that we add extra value and we become essential for their delivery, we kind of get married through a licensing arrangement. And so in order to have them rely on us and vice versa, um, we kind of become paired, we become part of the label. And those franchises at uh, kind of a regulatory approval stage would be like IP, but in a regulatory framework that would be at least a decade of, of development time where we would go down that track with them and grow with them. So being able to have access to more capital eventually would be really important to us um, and or be in the, part, the hands of a, a bigger partner that could help us scale faster. Yeah, as I was gonna say, the, the drug development pipeline times. I mean, it, the, the the record speed we had with mRNA vaccines was uh, was really incredible. Uh, and I, I was sort of curious how much, as you think, and it's sort of interesting. You have all these different partners who you're collaborating with to to go to market, and and sort of interesting. I, I, it seems like they may take some of the cost burden on developing some of the trials, and and or, or how or do you think about sh- having to share the cost with them as you? do all these, whether it's cat cancer or vaccines? Yeah, well, you know, fortunately, um, there is no cost of collaboration for us because we enter into their development programs and relatively the cost of bringing us into those programs is not high. The, the, the risk of developing a vaccine and the amount of investment there is, is, you know, enormous. So, it's a low-cost way for them to try it. You'll like it. If not, if we don't add value, not not a big deal. But when we become essential, essentially, they 
they have to rely on us in, as they go forward. We have um, we, we supply them products at, at uh, a cost, and then we get a piece of their revenue. So if we had to do it the other way around, um, boy, it would be really hard. I mean, we might have one development program because they're so expensive. But this way, I think it's the win-win. And increasingly, from a regulatory standpoint, the FDAs of the world um, would like to see that evidence. And because it becomes really compelling when we make things work better, um, that that we become essentially um, shepherded along with those those developments. And underlying all of that, we have our own regulatory approvals, and we have many that are you know first and only. It's like we're the only WHO pre-qualified technology. We're part of the polio eradication initiative. We have situations where we can reduce the dose of existing vaccines, help stretch supplies. So we do have a mission, um, you know, that is really fundamental to us, where we spend a lot of our time and some additional money on those kinds of programs where we share the risk with the NGOs of the world that are trying to address providing low-cost immunization solutions to the rest of the world. Yeah, it sounds like COVID is certainly all attention, no question right now, number one thing people are focused on. It sounds like cancer is a big development. Is there a another big bucket of like where current application of your technologies are most used and, and, and people should search out if they, if they like the idea of the needle-free technology? We have uh, 16 to 20 cancer collaboration partners, and that includes um, lung cancer, prostate cancer, melanoma, breast cancer, cervical cancer, et cetera. The, the ones that are most interesting, frankly, um, I'll give a shout out to Vaxabody because they are publicly quoted. Um, they have three programs uh, that have been optioned by Genentech, Roche, and Nectar. And the observable impact that our delivery has together with their cancer approach, their therape- therapeutic cancer approach, is that the cancer lesions disappear. I think that's so incredibly exciting. So not every approach to cancer will end up being through, let's say, our device or the volume of our delivery. But you can observe that the cancer world is changing its, its approach from chemotherapy, which is essentially let's kill the cancer, to instead let's help boost the immune response for the body to address also affecting the cancer. Um, so we have immediate lymphatic access, and then we bombard the antigen cells in the skin. That seems to be a really unique fit. And, and that, I guess, combined with the fact that um, we have a great patient experience, uh, and some of these approaches involve... 15 injections in one visit because, again, they're trying to bombard the lymphatic system and, and access the T-cells in the skin, and that would be horrifying if it were needles, honestly. It just wouldn't be very comfortable. So I have uh, – uh, maybe not everything will make it from our portfolio. You know, things do drop out, um, but I have confidence that we'll see within the next five years uh, at least two to three different additional um, – therapeutic cancer vaccines that come to market with PharmaJet's technology. That's all very exciting. Um, if you think about, you know, what well, what are the big challenges that in this COVID world that we have, what, what have been, as, as sort of CEO of a business, what have been the challenges you've been been struggling with managing your company and, and, and sort of uh, how, how remote are you? Are, you are, are people back in the office? How are, how are you navigating all this? Well, 
Um, COVID's been a challenge for everybody, and I heard Dr. Siegel, you know, call out that supply chain is still an issue, and and that is 1,000% true for everyone, including PharmaJet. Um, the we're, we're still relative to the world small, uh, but as an example, when the resin plant uh, in Houston froze, well, it turns out that 85% of the global resin market is was produced out of that Dow chemical plant. So you can't. Uh, sort out supply chain fully uh, quickly, and this kind of latency, I think, is is a problem. If we put that aside, however, we have uh, a stunning partner in Asia uh, called Univac, where our scale-up has actually been virtual because people can't jump on airplanes. And um, we have additional capacity that we've put in place outside the United States there, and then we had a couple of robotic partners, uh, for instance, in Germany, and we've moved robotics into India. Uh, it's been kind of a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week um, exercise for our engineers. And as much as supply chain's a problem, we're already out doing, you know, third-source supply chain to make sure that we can continue to execute and execute and execute. So uh, if we were purely using plastic for, for toys, we might not be at the top of the the radar for some of our suppliers, but um, so far it's more that there have been small delays as opposed to we can't get something. Uh, and you mentioned to start, your your mother was one of the co-founders. Is she still in the business? Are you still working well together? Any any challenges of, of a family co-developed business there? <laughs> well, it's funny because we're like best friends, right? And um, you can't... Um, there's not a price tag that goes along with the trust of developing something together. Uh, you know, it's just enormously wonderful. But when we started started out, we always knew that we'd need a lot of additional people with great uh, qualifications, and, and we have the A team. So um, we are still very involved, but it's it's uh, less burden on Kathy and I um, than in the early days. And then just to also to to help provide, you know, maybe why it is the inspiration of, of what we all do as kind of the next generation. She had a really international upbringing. Um, she's done global health and, and experienced needle stick and seen reuse. And the mantra of trying to create an innovation that's uh, really cost effective because healthcare is costly and, and uh, caregivers are always looking for better solutions. You know, that spirit still lives on. Uh, from her initial ambition and mission, and I feel lucky to be able to to play a part. Typically, my investment background means that I spend a lot of time with our shareholders and you know public advocacy, part of the executive team for sure. But um, I I feel lucky that I'm not one of our engineers right now because boy is is life life busy for them. And and given you know the all being close to policy, I mean we've got you know President Biden talking about new things. Any any sort of policy prescriptions that if you were giving advice to either the, you know the government or or companies, any any sort of policy prescription ideas from somebody close to the vaccine side of things here? Yeah, you know I I haven't heard any analogies used uh, about the current situation we face in the other crises in our history that most people don't remember. So uh, people all of a sudden saw their family members not able to walk because they experienced polio. 
and it's um, the iron lungs are a thing of the past in theory, but not really, frankly. And if we all take good healthcare measures of putting, you know, our mask on, washing our hands, we already have that uh, communicated highly after the most recent pandemic scare in 2009. So I, I'm surprised that um, we haven't used by analogy how infectious things like polio are or measles. In other words, if you're not immunized by polio, you have a one in 200 chance of being permanently paralyzed if you're exposed. Game over, right? Measles causes blindness and deafness, and we all haven't experienced measles a lot because immunization's been high. So I'd like to think that as we continue to see mutations of this virus, which will happen, just like flu circulates the globe every year, we'll understand that by being safe, being immunized, keeping our mask on, uh, washing our hands means that the economic welfare uh, rises, right? The indirect burden costs go away. And that's important not just for the United States, but for the globe. And because of the vaccine supply is still coming uh, online and addressing the rest of the world, this is going to take a number of years before um, this really kind of, it's not going to go away, but before this, this uh, feeling of, of urgency starts to diminish a little bit and things normalize. Well, Heather, it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, we love hearing about the progress and we'd love to stay in touch as, as you guys have more developments that use your technology. Thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.